0: I am joined by Simon Ree, the founder of the Tao of Trading and an options expert. Simon, welcome to Forward Guidance. How are you? How are you doing over in Singapore?
1: Oh, I'm really well, thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the show.
0: Simon, I, I want to get into it. You you are a, a, a trader, and you have a lot of views on the common mistakes that that people make in uh, in, in the market. Uh, but first, we got we got to hear about your background. How? Uh, how did you first get into finance? What was I know you were at Goldman? What what were you doing there?
1: Sure. So my, I guess, introduction to finance was in my second last year of high school. And that was the year of the 1987 stock market crash. And I was studying economics as one of my, you know, high school subjects, and had a great economics teacher at the time. And I, I had a passing interest in in the stock market, and and really the eighty seven crash really captured my attention and my imagination. I, I didn't have any skin in the game at the time; I was too young. But I, I just found the whole episode really fascinating, and I thought to myself, "Yeah, I, I want to do something in the stock market when I grow up." And I, even as a kid, as a teenager, I, I'd Open the newspaper. Yeah, we had newspapers back in those days, and uh, I'd read the you know the, the share tables at the back. And for some reason, I, I just was transfixed by the whole thing. So I studied economics and finance at university, and my my first job out of uni was as a futures broker. And I mean, that was great. Got a, a good introduction to, to markets and derivatives. Um, I just didn't find frozen orange juice and and bales of wheat as exciting as Microsoft and Dell and, you know, companies. So I still had that that itch that I wanted to scratch. And uh, then it was 1996, uh, I joined Goldman. Uh, I'd had a fairly strong derivatives background from my work experience up to that point. And I, I built a business around options, trading options, uh, more specifically selling options at that point in time. Um, so I built a business and then in uh, 2003 moved, uh, moved to Sydney to head up or found and head up the markets desk for Goldman within Australasia. Uh, did that until 2010 and then uh, I got headhunted by Citibank in Singapore. So I moved up to Singapore, which is where, where I am today, uh, worked there for six and a half years. And it was, you know, I guess I got to my mid-40s and started asking myself some of those tough questions, you know, like, what what are you doing with your life? What is your marginal contribution to society? And I I just didn't really like the answers I was getting back uh, because really I'd spent my whole career working with and helping people who were already incredibly wealthy either stay that way or become even wealthier. And, you know, I've always been fascinated... By teaching, imparting knowledge, it's something I've always loved doing. And I I just thought, you know what, it's time to use the skill set I've developed to help people who could really benefit from it rather than people who've effectively already made it financially. So I I left the corporate world, uh, basically retired from that world in 2017, started trading for myself full time. And then uh, through meeting mutual friends and, and mentors, uh, wrote the book and set up a, an online education company uh, helping fast track people's path to successful trading.
0: How do you define successful trading? What, what does that mean to you? And yeah, what are the common pitfalls that that people, people make?
1: Successful trading is, I, I guess it comes in stages that the first stage is not losing money. And most people get into trading with this almost lottery ticket sort of mentality of, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to trade and I'm just going to make millions of dollars. And it's, it's essentially gambling. Uh, you know, the, the people sometimes associate trading with gambling and, and sometimes those analogies actually work quite well, but there's an important difference. A, a gambler is looking to make an outsized return for little or no effort they're looking to generate something that they know they're lucky to get away with um, trading I think the motivation is very different you, you You're putting in the hard work you, you're doing the work and you are playing probabilities and you know that you're not going to win every trade because there's a reason this job is called trading and not guaranteed profits right It's because we're dealing with probabilities, not certainties but if you can if 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 people could approach trading with this idea of I'm just going to master the art of not losing money, provided they're following a practice that gives them a probabilistic edge, success is almost inevitable. And, and the second stage of success is, is becoming consistently profitable and, and being able to make returns that you, you just wouldn't be able to make as a, as a buy and hold investor.
0: So When you say success is inevitable, I think for almost someone with inevitable. certain disposition who... Maybe, perhaps, such as yourself, who's obsessive about it, who understands the concepts, who has the temperament, also, temperament much more important. I mean, that's what Warren Buffett said temperament much more important than just raw intelligence. Uh, perhaps, yeah, uh, success uh, has a higher likelihood than, but a lot of people are doomed. Like a lot of people who are trade, degree, you, you know, They work uh, 40, 50, 60 hours in a, in a job that's not finance. The odds that they are going to trade the market and beat the market to me over a long term basis to me it seems slim to none and a lot of you know academic experts as well as investors have said the same is that true true or yes or yes
1: uh, i I'd, I'd say it's it's not true okay um, the first thing i'd say is don't care about what the market does okay all you should really care about is is your own account okay your job as a trader is to manage your portfolio the nlv the net liquidating value of your portfolio so that it grows consistently over time okay you don't care what the market does you're not trying to beat the market you're just trying to generate consistent returns um as an options trader, I, I'm particularly passionate about options, you can make money in rising markets, you can make money in falling markets, all you're trying to do is book incremental gains, All right? You're not trying to earn your retirement on any single trade. You're just trying to be consistent and and book incremental gains. Now, consistency is, is a superpower. And it's something very few people have. I mean, the, the reason why most people don't have the body or, or the physique that they would ultimately want is because they can't consistently follow a few very simple rules. And, and it's the same for trading. Uh, there are just a few simple rules that you need to follow with any good trading plan that if followed consistent, consistently will yield results. But it's, just, it's that consistency, it's that discipline, it's that showing up every day that eludes most people. It, it's certainly not um, lack of sophisticated financial knowledge. It's certainly not lack of IQ or intelligence. It, it's really just that consistency and, and that ability to show up every day. When you
0: were at Goldman, what were the strategies that you did to sort of make money, and what are the strategies you employ now, and, and as well as you, you know, you, you you teach about? So the buying, oh, I'm going long Apple, shorting Microsoft, that doesn't work. I mean, I know people for whom it has worked, but 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 it's sort of like if it works for them, it's, it's by definition someone else has to sort of lose because the market is the market. So. What, what are sort of your strategy? You said, you said you like options, you like short-term things. I know you're also a technical trader. So what is sort of your recipe for success?
1: So what I'm always looking for, Jack, is high probability moments in time to enter the market. All right. So my my default position is cash. And I'm only going to put my cash to work when I see a really good opportunity to do so. So here's an important point. In in the way I think about what I do, and in all of my self talk, I'm I'm not a trader. I'm a risk manager. Okay, that's that's how I think of myself. That's how I talk about myself, and I place a high bar on any risk that I'm going to take. All right, It's, it's really it's got to tick lots of boxes. I I always say I need three or four reasons to get into a trade. I only need one reason to get out of it. All right, so risk management is always paramount, and that's that's what I see my primary role as. So, yeah, I, I use technical analysis. I use charts to identify those high probability moments in time. And what I'm looking for primarily is is trends. And I'm looking for a high probability moment in time to join a trend, whether it's an uptrend or a downtrend. Uh, what has been certainly more relevant over the last year, certainly since 2022, in addition to that is counter trend trading, where we're, we're looking for High probability turns in the market, and that's because the market's been volatile. It's been very choppy. Um, moves haven't had a lot of follow through. You know, when when you're trading a, a bull market, all you really need to do is is just buy the dip. You just buy every single dip, and and it's it's really not that hard. When you've got a bear market, like we had in 2022, uh, you you can't ignore the counter trend rallies. Yeah, I mean, shorting is fine. Uh, but you'll get wiped out if you get caught up in a in a big counter trend rally. So you, you really have to trade both sides of the market, long and short, um, at the appropriate times.
0: You trade equity indices, uh, ETFs, individual names, commodities, and then also what takes you for what what triggers you to go enter or exit a trade? Is it purely technical? So yeah, just just break down for me and the audience, yeah. like what 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 are you trading? You know?
1: Yeah, so I tra- I trade options on stocks and ETFs. So I'll I'll trade indices, I'll trade sector ETFs, I'll trade um a, a bunch of single stocks, you know, usually the the larger, more liquid names. And um yeah, I'll I'll buy call options if I want to go long, I'll buy put options if I if I want to go short. We we can talk more about that if you like. And what I'm looking for is specific technical criteria. So I've got three or four trading methods that I that are my bread and butter. I've built scans for them and I literally run those scans every day looking for opportunities. So I run a scan that will, you know, some days it might show up no results. Some days it might show up half a dozen. Sometimes I might get 50. Uh, if there's 50 scan results, I'll, I'll rank them in descending order of market caps. So looking at the largest, most liquid stocks first. And, and really what I'm looking for is stocks that A, meet the technical criteria, but also B, look right. You know, I, yeah. I want to see stocks that are actually making higher highs and higher lows if I'm looking for an uptrend or lower highs and lower lows if I'm looking for a downtrend. I want to see some evidence that uh, what I'm expecting to happen is is happening. And so then I'll, I'll enter a trade and, and just manage the risk very carefully. Uh, first sign of trouble, f- first doubt i have on a position i'll just get out you know my, my job as a risk manager is to prevent small losses from becoming big losses um that, that's been a very important lesson for me is, is keeping losses small um if the stock ends up doing what you thought it would do and moves in your direction so what you, you can always get back in uh, trading costs these days are de, de, de minimis uh, often even zero uh it's really only ego that prevents us from uh getting back into a position that we just got out of,
0: right? So let's say it's options on S and P five hundred or SPY, the ETF for the S and P five hundred. Would you ever be buying S and P five hundred a call option on on the SPY and then shorting it to sort of have a you know delta neutral position, or are you do you only trade options on the ETFs? Or you trade them themselves? No,
1: I mean what, what I would do if if I was looking to hedge a position, what I might do if if I've got long positions in you know Apple, Microsoft, JP Morgan, for example, um, and I'm concerned about you know a CPI print that's coming up, I, I might. <laughs> I might buy some SPY puts or some Triple Q puts or, or something like that. But it, 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 again, hedging isn't something that I would do on a whim. It, it's mm-hmm. I, I've got a specific sort of risk dashboard that I follow, a hedging checklist. Uh, I will put a hedge on if you know if my process tells me that now is, a, is an important time to do so.
0: Oh uh, well, Simon, you just the word hedging is just making me so so emotional. I've got to get into it. The word the word hedge. It's like don't worry about it. You're hedged. You know, I I have a stock, I own this stock, stock A, stock B, stock C, I can hedge it by shorting a basket of stocks that I can short S&P 500 futures. But I'm just changing my risk profile into a different blend of risk that I may be taking my beta exposure down but I'm increasing my exposure to the spread between what I own and what I short. So I think a lot of hedge fund managers say, oh, the stocks that I own, because I'm so smart, they're going to go up and I'll short the, the future that the herd owns. But it's like, sometimes the herd is right. Sometimes you're wrong. So if you're wrong, you get... So, and, and this is the, the banks, like with people talking about interest, interest rate hedging, uh, where there are a lot of good points. And like, you know, all, all of the very large banks have you know, very sophisticated hedging programs. And some of the regional banks do as well. But the idea of if you own a 10-year treasury bond Oh, you're gonna just hedge the interest rate risk out. It's like the ten-year bond is interest rate risk, you know. So you're just now you have a swap spread risk. So I'm just I'm get, I'm getting into the my own little little hobby horse. But talk talk to me about about hedging. Like, how do you think about hedging? Yeah. Because the idea of like if I own ten Apple shares, the way to get rid of the risk is to sell the Apple shares, not to, you know, right?
1: Yeah. Well, so the way I think about it, hedging to me. It's it's more. It's a more relevant conversation in a bull market. All right. Well, we'll talk about how to trade a bear market in a minute. In a bull market. Let's say I'm long some call cool options in some, you know, large market cap stocks and the trend is up and everything looks fantastic. Uh, that That is when you want to hedge, all right? You want to hedge when everything looks amazing, all right? If you, if you, I always get people saying, oh, what, what do I do about hedging, you know, after the market's fallen 10%? Well, that's like buying house insurance after your house has caught fire. You know, it, it's like, um. It's like applying for life insurance the day after you fail the medical, right? You, you've got to be preemptive about this. So what I, the way I approach hedging is if, if we're in a bull market, I've got some long positions on. If, it gets, if the market gets to a point where it is probabilistically likely to revert to the mean because it's stretched a long way away from the mean, you know, I'll do some hedging. I'll buy some SPY puts or some triple Q puts or, or put spreads or something like that. Now, as we know, markets can get crazily overpriced. And if that happens, I don't want to bail on all of my long positions because because there still could be some juice in the tank. But just as, just as well, uh, I don't want to get caught if if things do fall in a heap because markets are overextended. So when I buy a hedge, I'm honestly quite prepared to lose money on it. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily looking at it as a profit center, but it's it's just part of my risk management. So I've got a very strict rule. Um, I will go to cash. If I have a portfolio drawdown of 15% uh, from a high watermark, I will sell everything and go to cash for a minimum 24 hours. Now, doing that isn't a lot of fun. Uh, and so what I, what I do is I implement strategies that make that extremely unlikely. Hasn't happened to me since uh, October 2018. Um, but that's part of why I hedge. So it, it just, it smooths out the fluctuations in my NLV, which means it smooths out my emotions, which means I'm in a better position to make high quality decisions.
0: Right, and when you, let's say you in a bull market you own calls on SPY, the S and P 500 ETF. Things are going well. You're making a lot of money. You decide to hedge by buying S S&P, and uh, SPY puts. Tell me about that because when you buy SP, SPY puts, it's you're you're reducing your your uh, um, delta, so you're it's basically like you're, you're selling stocks, but then you also have a volatility exposure. And I believe that buying a put is the same thing as shorting the stock and then buying a call. So you're basically buying more volatility. Like, so you, you have a view on the actual underlying is, is 405 Is that underpriced, overpriced, whatever? And then you have a view on the volatility. So why not just sell the calls instead of buying the puts?
1: Yeah, I would. If if I if I was if my long exposure was SPY calls, I, I would just sell the calls. Okay. If my long exposure was a basket of you know somewhat correlated stocks, uh, and and I thought that certainly you know if the the index might be looking overvalued, but some of these stocks still like they could run um, by implementing a hedge and, and spending a, a you know a small percentage of my NLV on doing that. Um, yeah, I, I it's going to be a little bit of a drag on my portfolio if things keep going. But, but that's fine. Um, it's going to be an absolute godsend if, if things fall over. How do you trade a bear market? So with a bear market, I find that you know, with a bull market, okay, you can pretty much ignore counter trend moves. All right. Uh, if, it, if the market gets you know, really overextended to the upside, like I said, I can just buy some SPY or some triple Q puts or something like that. Um, I'm not looking to trade individual stocks short. It's just not worth it in a bull market because really you're looking to buy the next dip. In a bear market, there's a lot more two-way price action. All right. The counter trend moves in a bear market can be massive. You know, you can see 15, 20, 30, 50% rallies and, and still be in a bear market. If we, if you look at the, um, if you look at the tech rec from 2000 to 2002, uh, the NASDAQ had eight rallies of 25% or more, and it had a couple of rallies of 50 or 60%. All right, if, if you're just trying to short the market through all of that, you, you're, you're going to have a really tough time. So in a bear market, I'm far more likely to be taking directional positions long and short and, and you know, looking to trade both sides of the market rather than uh, putting hedges on top of a portfolio of of positions. And and generally, uh, I guess the holding period tends to be shorter in a bear market as well. As I said, the positions moves tend to have less follow through, they tend to change direction a little more quickly. So in a bull market, I might hold positions for two to four weeks on average. Uh, In a bear market, it might be anywhere from two or three days to, to a couple of weeks. Hey there,
0: sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September it's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up. And if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code guidance10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Walk us through the bear market that started in January of 2022. What is the nature of this bear market? Perhaps you can compare it to previous bear markets. And uh, what strategies have you found have worked the best throughout this bear market? And in particular, I'm I'm referring to the aspect of CHOP, where this is not March 2020 in any regard, uh, not 2008. Mm -hmm. It's this slow grind down. And then after a big move down, all the bears get all excited they're going on all the podcasts talking about how it's time to be bearish and then you have a huge move up and that just obliterates them uh yeah and we're kind of you know at the tail move of that maybe where you know the we've had a banking crisis and everyone's looking at the Fed's balance sheet and getting very bullish um and you know probably S&P 500 is up you know eight percent ten percent since 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 the, the the failure of Silicon Valley Bank um yeah just just over a month ago uh yeah so just just tell me about the nature of this particular bear market and yeah
1: yeah, it's, as you say, it's been fairly different from, well, yeah, completely different from 2020, but also very different from 2008. Um, in, in both of the pre- previous falls, we had kind of volatility exploded. And it was, you know, when, when, when volatility kind of has a big move, it, it sort of becomes a little bit more predictable. You know, volatility is a real mean-seeking beast. Um, what we've seen in 2022 is, uh, I think, volatility has really underperformed most people's expectations, given what happened to the market, particularly the Nasdaq. Um, and so it's it's been a it's been a surprisingly orderly sell off. Um, There's been an, an absence of sort of abject fear. I mean, we, we've ha- had a couple of spikes in the VIX above 30 or above 35, but you know that's been about it. We, we haven't seen anything uh, truly scary. And you know some people are sitting there kind of waiting for the big one They're saying "Oh the vix hasn 't hit eighty therefore we we can 't be anywhere near a market bottom uh, whereas other people are kind of pointing out other market dynamics such as uh, zero data expiration options mm-hmm. and the, their rise in popularity and the the impact they that might be having on on realized vol um, so yeah it's every every kind of market cycle is different um I guess the big difference with twenty twenty two was the Simultaneous fall in in stocks and bonds, and that's as a result of the inflation regime. Uh, we had uh, many many calls throughout last year of you know, "now's the time to buy bonds." Well, not, no, actually, now's the time to buy bonds. Well, now's really the time to buy bonds. And if-
0: Simon, Simon, everything before it was just test. This now, now is the time to buy bonds. Yeah,
1: yeah, correct, right. <laughs> um so, so that's really kind of thrown people um offside. Uh to me it's if you're following trends and, and following technicals, it's it's fairly easy to avoid mistakes like that. Uh, you just you just wait until the, the trend is reversed and, and you start, you know, buying the, the first higher bottom uh rather than trying to catch the falling knife.
0: Right. So I explained a few things. You said uh volatility mean seeking, that means uh, not referring to whether it's nice or, or mean, like the average. So if it yeah. goes to eight, you know, if the average is sixteen, it might go back to sixteen. If it goes to eighty, might go back to sixteen. Uh, but it's also clustering. So if it goes to forty, it could go to eighty. You know. Um, and then you said, uh, vol- you said, oh, volatility really like failed as a strategy. You're sa- saying that even though we had a bear market and s- stocks went down in price, uh, it wasn't an explosive sort of crescendo of liquidations where. Three percent down on Monday, four percent down on Tuesday. It wasn't, you know, there there was no Black Monday, Black Friday. There was, and and as such, people who bought volatility for protection generally didn't work. They if they bought a put option, it worked to the extent that the market went down, but it didn't work to the extent that um, um, realized volatility uh, was probably lower than implied volatility. Uh, that's what, and earlier when you said IV percentile, that's implied volatility, and you said the VIX. Uh, so yeah, and that, uh, the e- easiest way to see that is that the, you know, we know VIX above, uh, you know, 45 or, or let alone 50. Um, and the VIX is, um, 30 day implied volatility on the S&P 500. Um, that's right. And, uh, and, 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 but, but a lot of the action now is happening in the zero day to expiry options or very short expiry options. Yeah. Tell us about that. What is, what is going, what's going on the, the, Zero data expiry space. How big of a force is this on the the mechanics of the market, and, and that, you know how different is it from let's say five years ago, or versus you know when you were a Goldman?
1: Look, if if I showed you a chart of the S and P five hundred, um, a daily chart over the last year, and, and compared that with. You know previous downtrends. I, I don't think you'd look at it and say, "Wow, look, look at the difference zero data X pre options have, have, has had on the market." Um, look, I think it probably exacerbates intraday volatility. I think it probably helps to um, depress volatility, uh, implied volatility, because most of the action is is in people selling vol, not buying vol. Um, uh-huh. There's been a lot of hand wringing about, you know, is is this going to be the next kind of cataclysm to hit the market? I, I'm not convinced. I, I you know, I'm, I'm fairly, I guess I'm fairly sanguine about it at the moment. I, I haven't seen any any compelling evidence that uh, this is something I should uh, be losing sleep over. There's a lot of
0: price action that to me seems weird. You talked about the intraday price action, like from 9:30 to 9:40 the market's all, it's always a reverse of the move, you know, whatever the market does on a Fed meeting from two to two 30, it always is the reverse. There's this epic intraday reversals that if you're just looking at a daily chart, you know, you're, you're going to miss them. Yeah. How, how responsible for that? Is it to me, like, I'm i am just some guy, I'm just some kid, you know, like, it seems weird to me, but I've, I don't have the background that you have. Like, is it weird or, you know?
1: Yeah, it, it it's, I mean, it is kind of weird. The, the other thing that you need to, I guess, appreciate is that We've been in a bear market. Uh, Arguably, we're still in one. I I, I won't touch that argument. Um, But what we've seen is every economic announcement, whether it's FOMC rate decision, whether it's FOMC minutes, for goodness sake, whether it's CPI, whether it's non-farm payrolls, these have all become massive binary risk events. Now, there was a time, Jack, in the not-too-distant past where CPI print would hit the tapes stock market wouldn't care. It was just go on as business as normal. Uh, but we're, we're in a paradigm now where the market is just obsessed with economic data releases uh, and, and trying to impute what that means for the Fed's next move. Clearly, the market uh, doesn't love it when the Fed is hiking rates and everybody's been, you know, baying for this dovish pivot. Uh, be careful what you, you wish for, I think, in that regard. Um, but yeah, it's 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 kind of unusual. I I don't think it'll be like this forever. We we'll, we we'll, we'll get through this eventually, but but at the moment the current paradigm we're in is where every major economic data release is a, being treated like a major binary risk event. And and that in itself is is a little bit odd.
0: Today we're recording for me the morning of Wednesday, April 12th. We just had inflation come out and I'm seeing on, you know, where I website where I get the data, it was 5% year over year. Versus the consensus estimate of five point two percent, five point three percent year over year and the month over month is zero point one percent relative to zero point two. so it is a inflation is low. So if this happened last year and it never happened last year, that would have been <laughs> good news. So I don't know. let's see is the market up i, I I'm sure you know, but I haven't checked yet. the market's uh, up seventy eight basis points
1: it, it's we, we're sort of in the, in a range you know the s p 500s in a range of kind of thirty eight hundred to forty two hundred. I think unless we break out of that range, it's hard to get particularly excited about anything. Um, I don't think we're at a generational buying opportunity. Um, that said, I, I don't think markets are about to roll over and die here. Not not in the immediate term, anyway. I think that there's probably some some more upside pressure than downside pressure. Looking at well things like that CPI print and, and positioning. But it's it's hard to get excited about a market that's chopping around in a range, and and this is the sort of environment where really you just want to uh, keep your risk small and and just hit base hits. You're not looking to um, you know, really extend risk or or, or try and hit any home runs. Uh, I'd much rather try and do that in an environment where we've got a, a strong trend to play with. We, we just don't have that at the moment.
0: Talked about positioning. So there's going to be upward buying pressure because of positioning what does that mean and can you go through the argument of oh if everyone is you know is 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 bearish then there's no one to get there's no one on the margin to get bearish you know because everyone's already bearish so they have to do buying um yeah
1: yeah well, if you look at positioning in uh, S&P 500 futures it's it's particularly bearish um now you never you never know what's on the other side of that that could be a hedge for long equity positions but but the mm-hmm. fact is Futures are a leveraged instrument, and, and these are positions that can get squeezed if they're on the wrong side of a move. All right. So if there is a strong move up, uh, you can see a short squeeze, uh, which causes people who are short futures to start buying back their short futures, uh, which fuels further gains in the in the index.
0: Right. Um, I forget some baseball players. This is a great, great quote. i uh, have probably heard of that just because everyone else thought I was ugly didn't make me beautiful.
1: <laughs> it's like, is said a Yogi Berra, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's Yogi
0: Berra. Quote. Yeah, like yeah. if, if, if is, is, uh, everyone else is bearish, everyone else is positioned bearish, how convincing is that uh, is a bull argument in the short term, medium term, and long term? Short term, I guess it can be very effective.
1: Yeah, I mean positioning is is of interest. I, I wouldn't ever take a trade just because positioning got extreme, but if we do see extreme short or long positioning, you know, looking at things like the, the put call ratio or, or futures positioning, uh, yeah, I, I will I will start to lean the other way. You know, if if I'm if I'm long, and I see that uh, the market is long, you know, because uh, the, the put call ratio got below a certain level, yeah, I, I will. Stop. Uh, to me, that's a warning to uh, don't add any more long positions. And in fact, the next couple of positions you add should probably be short positions. What's a warning? What's a warning? Well, I mean, the, the put-call ratio is a, is a is a good warning.
0: All right, Simon, so we got this uh, chart of the put-call ratio. Thanks for for sending this over. What are we looking at here? What's the green line? What's the white line? And, and what does it indicate to you?
1: So the, the green line is the S&P 500. The the white line is the 10-day moving average of the total, the combined put-call ratio, which uh, takes into account uh, options positions in individual stocks and indices. And and what it shows us, or it gives us a guide as to how long or short market participants are through the options market. So if you look at that, um, see that first uh, big spike on the chart just, just to the left of center, sort of a, around August? Mm-hmm. You can imagine everybody's kind of seeing the, the the market rally, and oh, this is fantastic! Oh, I've got to get involved! Oh, I've got FOMO. I'm going to go out and buy a whole bunch of call options. And and what happens is the 10-day moving average of the put-call ratio drops below 0.8, and that is a sign of excessive optimism. Everybody's long, and when everybody's long, guess what? The market tends to run out of buyers, and, and it rolls over. And then so this is put-call ratio.
0: When put-call ratio is high. People are buying a lot of puts. Put is a bearish option. You know, if they're buying yeah, when it's calls, high, they're calls. buying a lot of
1: puts relative to calls. And when yeah, it's so people, low, they're buying, buying a lot of- more
0: puts than calls. Uh, and so, yeah, white is that line, and green is the S and P 500. So, when you had that huge run up, um, you know, into the summer, people started buying a lot more calls than puts, and the buying pressure sort of was exhausted.
1: That's right. And and the market you've got to remember is an equal opportunity dream killer. It will always try and exact the greatest amount of pain on the largest number of participants possible. So when everybody's long, that put call ratios below zero point eight uh be on alert for for the market to peak now it's It's not a precise timing signal but it's an important sentiment signal and it's something that I work into my framework. So I don't run out and start shorting as soon as the put-call ratio drops below 0.8, but I I stop adding long positions and and if I see any good counter-trend short setups, yeah, I I start taking them. Uh, And the same when when the the put-call ratio gets above one, that's when something bad has happened, everybody's wet the bed, everyone on Twitter is bearish, all anybody is talking about is how much lower the market's going to go. Well, guess what? Everybody's already short, and the market is going to make the shorts feel some pain now, uh, and that's usually when the market will put in a put in a low. And uh, yeah, I find that this is just one of many tools, but this this is a really handy tool to gauge market sentiment and positioning. So right now, that the put call ratio isn't telling us anything other than it's neutral. But if that white line continues to head towards the red line, you know that that could mean you know there's another three to five percent pop on the S and P. Uh, And if people keep buying calls into that, uh, that, that will set us up for a nice reversal to the downside.
0: Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, Blockworks Research might be a good fit for you. Blockworks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Right. And let's talk about technical analysis, which I know is a you know key feature of your your process. Um, you know, I I technical analysis is some sometimes hard for me un, to understand and I I feel like it has Two uh, uh, principles that sometimes are in conflict with each other. One is trend following. Oh, so if it's above its moving average, buy, buy, buy. You know, the trend is your friend. And the other is mean reversion. Uh, So fight the trend, be a contrarian. The chart that we just put on previously, that was kind of the latter. It was a contrarian. Oh, when everyone is super bearish buying more puts than calls, that's actually a time to, to orient bullish. So how do you know sort of which principle to follow?
1: price is only ever doing one of three things. It's either reverting to the mean, accelerating away from the mean, or chopping around the mean. So you you need to be able to identify what price is doing um, in order to, I guess, make a call on on what it's likely to do next. So if if we're in an uptrend and price has has reverted to the mean, what I'm generally going to look for is for it to accelerate away from the mean again. Okay, so that, that trend to kind of re-establish itself. If prices accelerated a long way away from the mean, you know, the, the, the odds are, the probabilities are that it's going to revert to the mean at some point. And, and the more stretched it gets, the, the more likely it becomes. And so then you might want to employ a mean reversion strategy where, where you're, you're expecting a, a counter-trend move back towards the mean. And then if price is just chopping around the mean, uh, th- th- these are, Tougher environments to trade, and and honestly, if I'm looking at a, a stock market that is just in a in a tight range of chop, generally I, I won't do anything on on that index. Um, what I'll do is is look for individual stocks and sectors where where there is a trend, and and normally you can find a trend somewhere. You know, if if, if the market might be chopping sideways, but but the energy sector might be on fire, or or tech might be in a horrible downtrend, or you know, you, you look for somewhere where the, where there is a trend.
0: Okay, let's take a. April of 2020. You know, I think the mod- market bottomed March 23rd of 2020. That the VIX had a, a, a top a, a few days prior to that, and the mean. What was the mean then? You know, you I like you. You know, I, I was there, and it's very easy to be convinced by this is a this is a bear market rally. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. It was the start of an epic bull market in in everything. Yeah. Um. So. How do you know? You know, how, how do you know? Let's say April 2020. Why couldn't you say, oh, the mean is uh, three 3,000. Things are getting, you know, excessive.
1: Well, the, the beauty of trading is you, you don't need to know, all right? All you're doing is assessing evidence as it comes to hand and, and playing the probabilities. You're not going to get every trade right. But if your process gives you a probabilistic edge, you'll win more than you lose. And if your risk management is competent, your winners will be bigger than your losers. And, and that's that's how you make a living. Uh, or that, at least that's that's how I make a living. So April 2020, uh, as you can probably imagine, we had a, an extremely high put-call ratio. Uh, we had an extremely high VIX. We had uh, an S&P 500 that it was, was several average true ranges below its mean. Uh, when I talk about the mean, I'm talking about the uh, the 21 day exponential moving average, and so the, kind of the, the the stars were lined up really for a, a strong counter trend bounce there
0: below its um, rally or b- below its 21 day mo- exponential moving. Yeah,
1: average? it was an exceptionally long way below. So there, there were certainly the the stars were aligning for a, a major bounce. I'm not saying I, I called the exact bottom, but but I was I was certainly bullish. Uh, in fact, I, I was bullish a little bit early. I, I got bullish a, li- a little bit about a week early, uh, and I, you know, I was posting on on social media, and oh, the, the the insults that I, I copped at the time was, yeah, I really really had to grow a lizard skin. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's that it, it sort of, I could see that the market had reached a crescendo of panic, and at the very least, we were due for a sizable dead cat bounce. Now, I didn't know that it was the bottom, and that it was the start of a massive bull market. Mm-hmm. But I didn't need to know that because all I was doing was just reassessing the evidence as it came in and, and trading accordingly. I, I'm not one to make big, bold predictions. You know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you the S&P is going to hit 4,600 by December or 3,000 by December. Uh, I'm just interested in uh, watch, watching how things unfold and just following my process and, and, and taking advantage of those short-term moves.
0: How else do you assess current market conditions? Um, You know, I'm thinking of the uh, uh, Jesse Livermore, but reminiscence of a a stock operator, you always got to focus on market conditions. The modern way of thinking about this talking about liquidity, a term that means many different things to many different people, the Fed's balance sheet, like it's if stocks markets go up, there's lots of liquidity. Why does the stock market go down? No liquidity, you know, it's it's very (laughs) sort of self reinforcing uh, 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 logic although I have had some liquidity experts on the show who actually have made some very good calls um, such as Michael Howell. Um, but yeah, how do you assess current market conditions? Uh, uh, yeah. And, and when you say yeah. oh, you, your base case is kind of chop 3,800 to 4,200, what are you basing that on?
1: I'll answer the, the second question first. So what I'm basing that on is, is really just uh, swing highs and swing lows. So the price has memory. Uh, if, if the market gets up to 4,200, it's likely to struggle there for a period. And if it can break through, we, we could see some follow-on, so some continu- continuation to the upside. Similarly, if we get down to 3,800, that's likely to be a, a level of support. If we break through that, there's likely you know, the, the probabilities are we, we could see some continued selling. Um, so it's it's really just looking at what what price has done historically to come up with those levels. These are not uh, you know fundamental levels of you know s S&P 500 mm-hmm. earnings or anything like that. Um, in terms of how do I assess market conditions, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things I look at. So I look at the major indices, the S&P, the NASDAQ, the Dow, the Russell 2000. I look at them across multiple timeframes. So I look at daily, weekly, monthly charts. I look at what the sectors are doing, you know, what's tech doing, what are semiconductors doing? You know, semiconductors can often be a, a bit of a first mover. Uh, then I look at uh, a bunch of correlated assets. You know, what, what what's the dollar doing? What's dollar yen doing? What's Aussie yen doing? Uh, what are bonds doing? You know, there's, there's been an important correlation between bonds and, and particularly the NASDAQ. Yes. Uh, and I, you know, that that won't last forever, but I, I expect that that correlation will remain for as long as we're in a, an inflationary regime. I look at things like uh, HYG as a, as a proxy for junk bonds, right? what are junk bonds doing, spreads doing. Um, if, if junk bonds are rallying, that that's a, a risk-on signal for equities and, and yeah, the, the counter is also true. So th- there's a whole bunch of market internal things I look at, like like the VIX, the put-call ratio, the SKU. There's a whole bunch of macro things that I look at. Uh, as I said, I don't trade based off any one of them, but they they give me a... A composite picture of you know, is the path of least resistance likely to be higher or lower from here?
0: So, what you trade based off is the technicals.
1: That's right. But but if but if the if the complementary analysis is screaming at me, you know this market is overextended, uh, sentiment is exuberant, the market is very very long, even if the trend is up, that's when I'll start looking to fade the trend.
0: What technicals are you looking at uh uh now we're talking moving averages r- resistance, yeah, like like start with your most uh, uh the, the indicator you you put the the most uh trusted and then we'll go down for the list
1: okay so so the most important indicator for me at the moment is is well is always moving averages because mm-hmm. they just give you a really good read on on short term trend and also medium and long term support and resistance. All right, so exponential moving averages can give you a really good read on what the short-term trend is doing, and then your longer-term simple moving averages can act as levels of support and resistance. And they're widely watched by pretty much everyone in the market, whether it's self-fulfilling prophecy or not, I don't care. The fact is it it seems to work more often than not, and and that's what I'm focused on, things that work more often than not. Um, Secondary to that would be things like uh, Keltner channels. You know how far away from the mean is is price. Um, also complementary to that would be things like uh, new twenty day highs and lows, new sixty day highs and lows. Is is the market showing strength? Is it breaking through these new highs, or or is it failing at them? Uh, and all of these will give me ideas as to how strong the trend is, and and whether we're we're seeing kind of failures at uh, at multi day highs, or, or whether we're seeing breakthroughs. And and all of that gives a a picture as to how strong the trend is. Uh, I'll look at things like um, breadth, things like the advanced decline line, percentage of stocks above the 200-day moving average, percentage of stocks above the 50-day moving average. All of these uh, can give you important clues as to how strong the rally is as well.
0: Right. And um, I'm just looking at a chart of the exponential moving average and the point where it's the most below its moving average is the point where the put-to-call ratio was at the bottom. So you always get the, you always get the, 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 the signals rarely con- send the sig- same signal, right? Especially right. the put-call ratio and the exponential moving average almost never give you the same signal.
1: Correct. Yeah, But, but yeah. It, they will at very important times.
0: Okay, okay. And it's a point of finding when they all align, that is, is when to make a big move, but you want to size down in periods where you have less conviction. Such as Absolutely,
1: uh, conviction is a—it's a word I I don't like to use. I, I know you know conviction is, is to me conviction is something for criminals, uh, and and it's also something for uh you know sell side salespeople. Um I like talking selling about conviction lists and that sort of thing. I if I say I've got conviction on a trade, it, it implies that I know for a fact that this trade is better than other trades, and I I, I don't know that, so I, I generally don't size up i i'll never bet the farm on a play uh, i i will size down though when markets are choppy and, and and not exhibiting strong trends
0: so your book Tows of trading also the name of your company what are some towers of trading that we, we haven't discussed about before that you you think are really important
1: so i think that the we, yeah, we've talked quite a bit about trend identification we've talked about uh market analysis we've talked about risk management we we probably haven't touched on mindset uh, and to me obtaining the correct mindset is the final frontier for most traders uh, and it's what will keep an aspiring amateur from from their dreams of of making a living from trading and and some of the things that really trip people up in in when we talk about mindset are the desire to be right all right there's the old saying do you want to be right or do you want to make money uh, people think that in order to make money trading, they've got to be right all the time. Uh, and I'm telling you, if you can be right 60 percent of the time, you can make a damn fine living as a trader. But the, the problem is, from the time you were two years old, every time you made a mistake, you know you, you you know you did something wrong. Your parents would yell at you. You go through childhood and school life. Your your, your mates would make fun of you. You join the workforce your boss is going to yell at you and so you, you develop this habit throughout your whole life of just trying to not stuff anything up which is just trying to avoid making a mistake at all costs because of the ramifications it has and so we end up as humans most people would rather drink bleach than admit they're wrong now as a trader you need to be able to admit that you're wrong and identify when you're wrong as early as possible as I said earlier, to prevent a small loss from becoming a big loss, but people really struggle with this. You know, they think, "Oh, I'm not wrong; the market's wrong." You know, that, that's a classic. Or, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be proven right. Or, or sometimes, just the shame or embarrassment of, of being wrong uh, is too much. They stop looking at their brokerage account, and you know, their, their account just kind of withers away to zero in the background. There are not many avenues in life where you can be handsomely rewarded for being wrong 40% of the time, all right? But trading is one of them. And it, it's a big adjustment that people need to make if they want to be successful in this field. They, they're got to get over this fear of being wrong uh, and of wanting to be right all of the time.
0: Definitely. What is the role of intuition? What do you have a sense of intuition that you feel because yeah. of your experience? You trust it, but also, you know, if people yeah. sign up, for, you know, if people you're teaching people, you don't want to te- tell them to follow their intuition because they're new to the market, you know?
1: That's a really good question. Um, tra- intuition will lead you astray 99.9% of the time if, you're, if, if you've done less than you know thousands of trades. It, it takes thousands of reps to build that trader's intuition. Markets are actually designed to get you to an emotional state where you will do the wrong thing at the wrong time. You'll chase moves that are already underway. You'll sell out at the bottom because the losses are making you feel sick because you haven't managed your risk properly. Literally, markets are set up to do this. So unless you've got thousands of trades, you know, thousands of reps under your belt and you've been consistently profitable, forget about intuition. One, way, one thing you can do and one thing I share with my members to, to start building that intuition is whenever you look at a setup and whenever you take a trade, print the chart out. Print it out on paper, keep a record of it and what you can do once a month, once a quarter, once a year, go through and look at all of your winning trades and all of your losing trades and and your your brain will start to make connections that you probably can't even put into words. But By looking at what a winning setup looks like on a chart compared to a losing setup, you can start to build that intuition a little more quickly. Um, Many of the lessons that the market will teach you from trading are very, very subtle uh, they're so subtle that unless you're really looking for them and, and, and aware of the lessons, uh, they can really pass you by.
0: Mm. And uh, now I'll ask you is, let's say you make money trading the market. Where does that money that you make come from? Does it come from the market? Does it come from, uh, is its is it zero sum where if you make money trading options, someone else must be losing money trading options? Because, you know, at, at a poker table, uh, if I make money, it's because someone else at the table, you know, lost money. Is it similar in the financial world, even though you know the table is is the entire world? Uh, or is it just sort of gains gains from trade? Oh, I'm helping the market discovery because the market needs to know that there's not enough oil, so I'm actually doing service, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, I I don't think uh what I'm doing in the market is as noble as that. I I, I like to try and uh, help other causes with the with the money that I make, but but to answer your question, it, it's an interesting question. I I don't think it's a, I don't think it's an important question for traders to have at the front of their mind because it, it's probably not that helpful. If if you're this if you're a kind, generous, giving person, and you're worried that the person on the other side of your trades is necessarily going to lose money, uh, you, you might engineer a kind of habit where you actually don't make money you know um, my, my perspective on this is I, I trade options almost exclusively 99% of the time I am trading with an options market maker they're fine all right the citadels of the world are fine I'm, I'm not worried about them okay they make they make plenty of money and if they're losing money on the other side of my trades yeah I'm not going to lose any sleep over that market makers are fine
0: for sure, Simon. I wasn't so much making a um, you know a moral point. It was more of let's let's make some you know several assumptions. Let's say you're good at trading, and that people ca- uh, you know who who learn from you that, uh, uh, they can get trading. If everyone at the world followed the the, the Tao of trading. Who who is there to sort of make money from? You know, like the market. The market itself will change. That's what I'm
1: saying. The composition. Yeah, I mean, I mean that that would never happen uh, because yeah, yeah. there are you know so many thousands of different trading methodologies out there. But the fact is, as an options trader, you you are nearly always going to be dealing with a market maker, uh, and it's their job to hedge their risk. Um, and, and so, you know, I I don't worry about it. I just assume that they're doing their job, and and if they're not then it's, it doesn't concern me. I mean, the, the way I think of financial markets is that there's trillions of dollars turning over every day. You know, it's it's like this river of abundance. And all I'm trying to do is just scoop my hand in and just take a little bit out for myself that basically nobody else would even notice. Right.
0: All right, well, Simon, as, as we approach a close, what are some of your views right now? What are trades you're actively involved in or you're actively, if you're not involved in now, you're looking at exploring And it can be, you know, a sector thing. It can, you know, uh, any sort of thing where, you know, it's it's sort of catching your eye.
1: Yeah. So at the moment, we're we're sort of in the early stages of earnings season. Uh, We've got obviously the major banks reporting, some of the major banks reporting on Friday. Um, I have not been buying bank stocks at all. Um, The fact that banks got so hammered and and didn't have a a reversion to the mean is is a little bit of a a warning sign for me. So I'm I'm kind of ignoring the banks at the moment. but yeah, really, for the next month or so, my focus will be on earnings season. Um, earnings trades are, are one of my trades that I, I like to do during earnings season, where you, you kind of uh, take advantage of the IV rush and avoid the IV crush post earnings. Uh, so that that can work really well. Uh, I've I've got you know a couple of positions in, in some tech stocks that are showing good uptrends. Um, I've got a a bearish calendar spread on the queues just as a a very, very gentle hedge at the moment. Um, But yeah, nothing, nothing sort of sectoral specific, but really what I'm focused on at the moment is is earnings season. Uh, Once we get to the end of that, it'll just be a case of um, taking a a look at the broader markets again. Hopefully uh, we've got uh, a more defined trend established, whether it's up or down, I'm I'm indifferent uh, and we, we, we somehow move either to the, one extreme or the other of the chop zone or, or break out of it. But, but being in the middle of the chop zone is not as much fun as a trader. Like, like I said, it's just a time to, uh, to pay back risk.
0: How much time does this take? Like, let's say, you know, you, this is a full-time job for you. Sounds like, you, you know, you've been quite, quite successful. Um, you know, is this, is it implementable to have success if someone has a, another job? Because, It sounds like it's a lot of work, you know, and if you don't do the work, you're going to get crushed.
1: Yeah, I would say learning it is is, there is definitely effort involved. And and that's another reason why most people don't succeed. All right. It's because they don't put in the work in, in learning how to trade properly. So there is definitely Many many hours involved in in learning and practicing, but once you know like when a golfer has grooved their swing once you 've kind of grooved your swing in trading there 's no reason it should take you more than about half an hour a day on average now there might be days where it takes you an hour, there might be other days where there 's nothing to do it 's just a quick review of your positions and and, and it might take you two minutes um, but if If you use scans that provide you a short list of high high potential candidates and it's just a case of reviewing the scan results and, and sort of reviewing the macro conditions once a week or over the weekend, uh, it, it shouldn't be terribly onerous. And in fact, I think it's a, a very, very time efficient way of, uh, of making money.
0: Got it. Well, before I ask my final question, uh, Simon, as folks can, can see from on the screen on Twitter, you're at Simon underscore Re. Where can people find out more about your, your business and, and your book, The, the Tower of Trading?
1: Yeah, so so Tower of Trading, it's available on Amazon uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's been a, a number one bestseller and you can find more about me at tower of com. That's T A O O F T R A D I N G.com.
0: Uh, thanks Simon. My, my final question is, do you prefer to be long options or short options and why?
1: I prefer to be long, um, simply because it's an easier way to compound your returns, um, being short options is fine and it's it's great in a high volatility environment, uh, but I find I can compound my gains more quickly and more easily by being long, whether it's long naked options or or long spreads
0: and what is the sort of advantage of being long options? you know you said you, you're doing trades against a market maker Citadel if you're buying s p y call options struck at you know four hundred Citadel is buying them. Sort of, tip, you know, typically the theory goes that people who sell options, there's a volatility risk premium that you're paying. You're paying a fee to get access to that optionality. Like, so how do you how do you make sure that the gains that you get from options are greater than the fee that you get based on the volatility risk premium?
1: This is why it is so important to be able to identify high probability moments in time to put your cash at work. All right, that, that's why I have a very high bar on on trades that I take. I, I'm I'm not Taking crap shoots. I'm I'm not trading intuition. Uh, I'm not trading something because some Twitter handle said it looked like a good idea. Uh, I, I'm really, you know, I've done my homework. I, I've got my processes, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to win every trade. That's for sure. Uh, losses are part of the game, but so long as I win more than I lose, and my winners are bigger than my losers, I, I can I can make decent money. And do
0: you always have a stop? In other words, oh, if I lose this much money, I'm out of the trade.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. So I have a, what I call my OMG stop loss level. So if the option premium that I've paid decreases by 50%, I'm out of the trade, no matter what, no, no no questions asked.
0: So you never let an option expire worthless. Never,
1: never, never, ever, ever let an option expire worthless. But what I'm really vigilant on is, is getting out of a position that isn't working well before it hits my OMG level right so if i see a moving average crossover if i see a, a close below a 50 period moving average if um, you know, if uh, if i see two consecutive closes below a 21 ema and i'm in a long position that, that's an early warning sign you know that, that I, I i'm sort of got my finger on the trigger and if the 80 ema crosses underneath the 21 ema I'll, I'll get out of the position and what and about reverse usually-
0: yeah what, what if a position is, is working really well um, you know, oh, if it doubles, I'm going to sell it all. If it, you know, like, are you s- sizing down as the position goes up? And that's a yeah, nice I'll feeling when, you're, you're, yeah, when you, yeah, when you can sell something and you've only sold part of it, but you've already made money. You know, the cost basis. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I'll scale out of positions usually if if I if I'm up more than a hundred percent, I'll take some profit, uh, and then it becomes a roadmap. You know, I'm looking at things like average true ranges. I'm looking at things like support and resistance, Fibonacci targets. All of those will go into my Decision on uh, on where to come out of a position. Um, I, when it comes to options trading, I'm actually a big fan of selling too early. Right, I, I don't wait for, I, I don't wait for the price to peak and then start rolling over because then you, you're just joining the queue of everybody else, kind of rushing out of the, the theater that's on fire. Uh, it, I, I always like to leave a little bit of upside so that it's easier to sell the position on someone else.
0: Well, you know, Simon, I do I do have a pretty uh, horrible experience with that. I by pure luck, I happened to buy a very out of the money, uh, a put option on an individual stock that was very volatile in February of twenty, like late February of twenty twenty, and uh, it was. Oh wow! I was a twenty. It was a twenty bagger in terms of. Oh wow! But then I let it expire worthless. Oh no! <laughs> I, I know. Is that it, it's like, and it, this is the yeah. type of thing where amateurs make but you would never make you would never have made that mistake um and it's just it's it's a risk if you don't know what you're doing it's the the risk of losing money trading if you don't know what you're doing uh is very large
1: it's very high and you you read all the statistics about how you know 80% of traders lose money and and you know sadly it's it's probably true and I think it's because the, the barriers to entry to open a trading account are so low. You know, anybody with 500 bucks can open a, an options brokerage account. Now, when you want to drive a car, you have to get lessons and you have to pass a test and you have to get a license. Uh, you can ima- imagine how many accidents there would be on the road if nobody bothered learning how to drive before getting in a car and driving one. But nobody makes you pass a test or get a license to open a brokerage account, which is why we see so many financial accidents.
0: I don't think brokerages do people a lot of favors by you know not showing the implied volatility, just just making it seem like it's some easy purchase. um Yeah, I mean, do do you think that the proliferation <laughs> sharing bro- your
1: screen with confetti every time you place an order? Yeah.
0: yeah, is that is that they really
1: do that? Well, that that was going on, wasn't it? I, the, I think
0: I think you're right. Oh man, uh, yeah. but okay, so the proliferation of options—you're presumably go, as an options expert who is you know um, work, working with, in some cases with retail investors. Uh, you know it's been maybe good for you but like do you think it's good that so many people who don't know how to do options are trading options
1: no i think it's really bad i yeah. think it's really bad for their financial health
0: other than the Tao of trading do you have any books that you feel are kind of like the holy grail of finance trading or particularly options i feel like options is one of those things where you can you can learn um a lot of things in finance on the job but in options like you, you really got to know what implied volatility is, you, the, the math and stuff like that. Like, is there any sort of Holy Grail book?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, the Holy Grail is uh, Options, Volatility and Pricing by Sheldon Natenberg. Mm-hmm. To me, that that was the book that I made all of my guys read when they joined the desk. Um, that will give you, you know, it's it's not a page turner, but it'll give you a very thorough grounding in in things like implied volatility. Um, and then the other book that I love is uh, Trading in the Zone by Mark Douglas, which really deals with that mindset and the you know, emotional control. And uh, those things are, are so important as well.
0: Final question. You've out- outlined your style of trading. What do you think about the other ways of making money in, in the markets and you know the old fashioned style of, oh, there's this company and I'm reading the annual report and I'm going to buy the stock and hold it for 30 years? Uh, like how do you How do you sort of place your type of trading in the sort of panoply of investment strategies?
1: So it really depends on an individual's objectives. so if you're a if you're a let's say you're a long term buy and hold investor and you know the, the long term average annual return of the s and p five hundred it, it's approximately ten percent per annum all right and if you're happy with that return, then I think that approach is fine. But if you're going to earn 10% per annum forever, you you either need to be young, you need to sort of be in your 20s and have that kind of 40 year runway for compounding to work its magic, or, or you already need to have a lot of risk capital. All right, if you're if you're sitting there in your 40s or 50s and you don't have a million dollars saved up, and maybe you've only got ten, twenty thousand dollars saved up. 10% per annum, it just isn't going to move the needle. All right. So you, you need to do something else, whether it's trading or whether it's, you know, an online business or, you know, working a second job or, or whatever it is. Um buy and hold, investing, earning those sorts of returns is unlikely. It's just not going to move the needle for you. you. You don't have enough runway if you haven't got a, a large amount of capital.
0: Right. But that's the assumption that, you know, everyone is going to become very, everyone's goal is to become very wealthy and also...
1: Not very wealthy. I'm just talking about being able to fund your retirement. Right,
0: right. right. But obviously, if everyone had a choice between a a guaranteed 10% return or a guaranteed 5% return and a guaranteed 25%, you know, if strategies that generate higher returns are riskier
1: generally. Strategies that generate higher returns require more effort. Um, This you know, Wall Street has been peddling this story forever that uh, high returns, high risk equals high returns. But we need to think about what risk actually is, okay? Risk is the possibility of losing, all right? So really what Wall Street has been telling us is if you want to maximize your chance of winning, you've got to do that by increasing your chance of losing. And, you know, I would ask you, how does that make any sense at all? All right. I've got a I've got a different theory, which I talk about in my book. And, and you know, I would postulate that uh if you want to maximize your chance of winning and getting great returns, you have got to do everything you responsibly can to minimize your chance of losing. And and that's mm-hmm. through high probability setups, and proper risk management.
0: And I see what you're saying. You're saying you have a protocol where you know, oh, I'm never going to lose more than 50% on an individual position. If I'm down 15%, I forget the number uh, from the the total, total value. I'm going to go completely to cash, but the, the trade it's, it's, it's all in the individual, right? You're, Mm -hmm. you're the individual is, is piloting the plane. And if they are reading the Tao of trading, the best book of finance ever, if they're, if they're not getting the message or they're misinterpreting it, you know, there are risks and you'd say, you know, right. Let's say, like yeah. the, the risk for you individually is is low because you know what you're doing. But a lot of people, you know, you, they could misinterpret. Mis- you get what I'm saying? Absolutely. But
1: yeah. yeah. But you know, I, I do. I spell out the uh, the risk management protocol that I I recommend, and and if you follow that and you're consistent and and you you, know, you honor it and you follow it to the letter, uh, your chance of blowing up is 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 basically virtually zero. Um, and then. From then on, it just becomes, again, acquiring the skill of not losing money. And if you keep the reps up, and, and you're not losing money, you, you will eventually become profitable if if you follow the process.
0: Mm. Well, Simon, it's been a pleasure getting a chance to interview you. Are you? Is it true you're a, a practitioner of a g uh, Jeet Kune Do? What, what what is that?
1: Yeah, so Jeet Kune Do is the it's the martial art that Bruce Lee discovered. Um, Bruce Lee is often referred to as the the father of mixed martial arts, he, he started studying Wing Chun under Ip Man. Uh, he wasn't thrilled by some of the, uh, the, the more classical aspects of that art. And so he, he came up with Jeet Kune Do, uh, which is sort of an amalgamation of Wing Chun uh, fencing and Western boxing, uh, to, to put it s- simply. Uh, I've studied many martial arts over the years. Martial arts have been a part of my life for most of my life. And uh, I, I love all martial arts, but Jeet Kune Do is, is the one that resonated with me. And it's the one that I, I kind of took all the way and I became a certified instructor.
0: Oh, that is that is great. I will say no martial arts experience, but the movie Ip Man is a phenomenal movie. Oh, brilliant movie. Yeah, yeah. I love brilliant. it. Right. Well, well, Simon, um, thank you so much for, for sharing your, your insights and your, and your time. And thank you everyone for watching.
1: Absolute pleasure, Jack. Thank you. Forward
0: Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.